It was the burden on his back that pushed him forward. And he was on his journey to get rid of this burden, this huge sack weighing down on him. But on his way, he fell into the slew of despond. Now, the slew of despond was this ugly quagmire of sinking sand and mud. And as the pilgrim was traveling, he sunk into it. And because of the burden on his back, he could not get himself out of it. He struggled and tried with all his strength, but he could not get himself out of this bog. This is one of the scenes in John Bunyan's famous Pilgrim's Progress, in which you have this man who has this sense of guilt, uh, this burden weighing on him, and he's seeking the heavenly city, Jerusalem. And it's the story, much like the Psalms of Ascent, it's the story of his trying to get there and get rid of this burden and then find his home in God. And early in the journey, actually, he stumbles into what he calls a slew of despond. Despond is a very gripping emotion. It's this horrible place where we lose our confidence, we lose heart, and we lose hope despondency. And here, the journeyer, the ascender, the pilgrim sinks because of the weight on his back. Now, in Pilgrim's Progress, we learn that the weight on his back is his sin. And Christian, the pilgrim's name, is able to get out because help comes along and shows him that there are steps in the slew of despond to help him get out. And then there's this exchange where the Christian, Christian, the pilgrim, learns that God wants, the king has tried for centuries to fill in this part of the road. And it says over 20 cartloads of truth have been paved over this bog, but it always gets sucked back in. There's nothing he can do because here, and I will read to you um, one of the parts of the story. He says, because here as sinners awaken are awakened by the Holy Spirit, they see their vile condition, and there arises in their souls many doubts and fears and many discouraging apprehensions, all of which merge and settle in this place. And that is the reason for this marshy slew. Despond because of our guilty conscience, because of our conviction of sin there can often be a loss of confidence and hope. And this guilt, this sense that we've wronged someone, something, God, that we, there's, we're in debt to, that we're somehow in a bad relationship with, that guilt weighs on us like a burden. And when we hit places, patches on our journey, where we begin to sink and despond, the weight of that continues to hold us down. That is where Psalm 130 takes us. It's as if John Bunyan got the slew to spawn from the psalm itself. For on our journey, we find the pilgrims are crying out in the depths. So let's look at Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Verse 1, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Yahweh. Out of the depths, 
So the depths there refer to any sort of bottomless abyss. Uh, One translation actually says, the bottom has fallen out. This is the slew of despond. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Yahweh. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Also can be translated as grace. So here we see that priestly benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you and give you peace. That line there is echoing that um, benediction that's weaving its way through all of these psalms here. So he's crying out to God for help. I'm in the depths. I'm sinking in despond. Verse 3. If you, O Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If you're keeping tally of all of our sins, we're doomed. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared or respected, worshipped. So here are the stakes. We're, we're sinking in despond, and then there's this realization as guilt can be the burden holding us there, that, oh no, if God is keeping score, we're doomed. There's no chance. We will never get out of this despond. But with you, there's forgiveness. There's hope. Then in verse 5, the psalmist calls us to action. It says, I wait for Yahweh. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Waiting. Now, um, the word wait isn't just a passive twiddling your fingers and just kind of yawning until something happens, but it does all, but it does suggest that we aren't not trying to take matters into our own hands necessarily. So it's not just waiting, it's not taking everything into our own hands. There's a balance. And some translations put it like this. They translate the word wait as count on. I count on Yahweh, my soul counts on him. Another one says rely. I rely on Yahweh, my soul relies on him. The idea here is that we're not quick to take it by the horns, but we're looking to God first to help us. We're waiting on him before we sink in despair. Um, Then verse 7, the result. What happens when we do this waiting on him and hoping in him? Verse 7, O Israel, hope in Yahweh. For, if we do hope in him, then for, with Yahweh there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. Very different than a slew of despond, sucking you in, taking you down. Instead, we see steadfast love, as if it's solid. It's not going to sink on you. Steadfast, reliable love, and plentiful redemption. You're not limited and constricted in your movement, but there's the broad country of God's rescue, of his salvation, plentiful redemption. And then verse 8, the last result is, he will redeem Israel, or you and me, from all our iniquities. So here the psalm goes through, we're in despond, and there are high stakes Because if God's counting our sins, if he's counting our iniquities, who can stand 
And that is a great question. How can we stand? Sin mires us in despond. It mires us in guilt. How can we stand? Or when we are in sinking sand, how can we stand? When we are wallowing in despond, how can we stand? When the bottom falls out of everything, how can we stand? Well, I just fix everything, of course. That's usually our approach. When we feel everything sinking and giving way and and we need solid ground to stand on, we usually try to find it on our own. So some of us would be... Obviously, you gotta you got to put cement over this slew of despond. So I'm going to find something solid. So we try to pave concrete. We try to pave the concrete of money or security through wealth. We try to pave the concrete through maybe a political identity. Like, if this political identity wins, then I will feel better about the world. Or we try to pave over the despond with the concrete of social status, whether it's our job position or how smart we appear or how spiritual we appear and the way we present ourselves at church and around the world or the, or, uh, the people we hang out with, whatever it is, um, There's a sense of maybe my social standing can kind of smooth out this slew of despond. But the problem is, no matter what we lay over the slew, there is this oppressive burden, this sense, this haunting sense of guilt that not everything is okay. And yes, my friend, I know that for many of us watching, perhaps we have asked Christ to forgive our sin. We've given that to him. But here's the bottom line. Somewhere in the past month or the last week or even just today, I have chosen to walk in my way. I have rebelled against God's way. I have done some sort of sin. And without keeping my eyes on Christ, this haunting sense of I did something wrong or I'm not in the right or I'm on, I'm on precarious ground. I feel that the ground is getting a little muddy, a little soppy. That goes with us. Unless we regularly focus and fine-tune our vision upon God as the forgiver of our sins. There's no way we can fix despond in our lives. There's no way we can fix the burden on our shoulders. There's no way we can fix the situation that we all find ourselves in presently in our nation, in the world. We can't just simply come up with a better strategy to fix the despondency in our lives. And what we learn when we try is that one fix leads to another fix. Isn't that interesting how the word fix has two meanings? It can mean either you improve a situation or it can mean you find yourself in a situation that needs to be fixed. I'm in another fix. I need to fix my fix. See, one fix just leads to another fix. If you choose the path of fix, 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 you will never move forward. You'll never find solid ground. And what I didn't tell you about Pilgrim's Progress, the story, is that Christian went into the slew of despond with another person called Pliable. But Pliable, the minute they plunge into the slew of despond, Pliable decides, I'm going to fix this. And he gets out, no problem. Christian is, is, is wallowing in this mire, but 
pliable has no problem getting out and going back. You see, it's easy to get out of the slew to spawn if you go backward. And that's what trying to fix our situations does, is we actually move backward. At one point, we came to Christ because we realized we couldn't fix everything. And so he brought us forward. But at some point in the journey, we suddenly think, yeah, no, I got this. And we start to try to fix things ourselves. Friends, we move forward the same way we entered this journey with Christ. It doesn't change. We keep trusting him. We keep looking to him. He alone is our way out, our way forward. So in the story, help says, but why didn't you use the steps, Christian? And Christian surprised it. I didn't know there were steps leading me out of the slew to spawn. Because Christian said, look, when I sunk in here, fear overwhelmed me and I couldn't see anything. Isn't that true with the spawn? When we sink in, we get blinded and we get so sucked into this moment. And how can I get myself out that we don't see the very steps God is providing for us? What we need is help. And help shows them the steps. The steps, the psalm, also gives us the steps out of the spawn. It says there in verse 4, remember our question, who can stand? Verse 3, well, verse 4 says, but here's how you stand. With you, Lord, there is forgiveness. With you, there's forgiveness. When we ask the question or we wonder how can we stand, often our initial response is, I'm going to fix this. But then we find out we're just in yet another fix, a bigger slew of despond, or we're sinking further. It's almost, doesn't it seem that when you're sinking, the more you wiggle and the more you try to help yourself, it's almost like you're working yourself in deeper. But then we learn this big moment in the psalm tells us, no, that's not the way out. The steps are right there. God gives us forgiveness. And it's for us to cry out, Lord, Lord, you are the solution. I need you to take the burden off. You to pull me out of the despondency I find myself in. It's interesting. I was reading an article this week um, in the Atlantic. I can't remember who wrote it, but it was in the Atlantic, if you want to look it up, about children and depression. And they made this connection that children who experience um, uh, excessive guilt, they do something wrong and they, they get guilt tripped because of it. And they experience excessive guilt. They found that there's a connection between that feeling of excessive guilt and depression as they age. And while the article asks, we're not sure if the guilt um, is something you're inherently with, so you're inherently more depressed, or if the guilt itself shapes a child's brain to develop depression, the article admitted we're not 100% clear, but I believe personally, as I look at God's word, the connection's very clear. When we are overwhelmed with guilt and we feel like we're at fault for something, we tend to spiral into despond. We tend to feel this weight and this depression. God wants to take us out of that. Out of the depths, I cry to you. And he says, you don't need to feel like it's your fault you're where you are. You don't need to feel like you have to make it up to me. I knew you can't do it. And that's why I've been walking with you all the way. You ready for forgiveness? I'll pull you right out. 
And as soon as we realize that it's God's habit to forgive us, if only we ask, if only we come to him, we find renewed strength. We find renewed energy that helps us to keep going. So when the bottom falls out, when we find ourselves sinking in sand, how do we stand? Forgiveness pulls us onto solid ground. Forgiveness is the only path that gives us solid ground. No longer are we walking this fragile relationship. How am I with God? Am I doing well today? We don't have to walk that way anymore. We're walking on the solid, firm ground of his steadfast love because he's the one, but in you there is forgiveness so that you may be feared, so that we may respect you and want to be with you and walk with you. The forgiveness gives us solid ground. This is the path that we want to walk on. And when we choose to walk on this solid ground of forgiveness, we discover that the way forward is clear. There's no fear in walking forward. We don't have to wonder, but what if the road gets hard again and I mess up? See, we, we don't move forward when we're afraid. And we're afraid when there's some sort of consequence or some sort of risk that's going to come with making a mistake. We don't walk with a God who says, how dare you stumble again? I can't believe you're in the slough to spawn yet again. I cannot believe you tripped on that rock. How many times do I have to tell you to get off your phone and watch where you're walking? That's not how God handles us on the journey. Every time he says, I know, I know, we're growing up. You're not at your destination yet. I get it. I forgive you. Let's keep going. And if we realize that this is the kind of God we walk with, whose habit is to forgive us, that in him is forgiveness. If we walk with him in this way, we will not fear moving forward and stumbling or failing because we know how to get out of the slough of despond. And it won't be up to me to be clever again or to use my exasperated strength to crawl out. All I have to do is, like the psalm says, out of the depths, I cry to you. And he hears. No, he's not counting our iniquities. It's a rhetorical question. Lord, if you should count, if you should mark our iniquities, who can stand? But when we're in the slew of despond, he's not sitting there going, oh, that's the 17th time since lunch. Rather, the psalmist says, when you cry out from the slew to spawn, with him there is forgiveness. Friends, this truth, this pivotal moment when we realize it's not on us, but on him to forgive us, gives us the hope we need to crawl out of despond. Remember, despond is a loss of confidence. It's a loss of heart. It's a loss of hope. But when we know there's forgiveness and we know there's a way forward, there's always hope. A loss of hope is a loss of seeing any way forward. And a loss of any way forward is what despond is, is in one sense what depression, especially spiritual depression, can be. Darkness suffocates and closes in when we cannot find a way forward. But with you, there's forgiveness. And this moment of truth tells us, yes, that path, that way, there's hope. We can keep moving. At this point, we need to clarify that hope 
isn't what most of us use the word for. I, you park your car in downtown LA in some sketchy alley because it was easier than battling everything else in parallel parking. You leave your car hoping it will be there when you come back. You understand? Or we say, I hope that the government allows us to return to gatherings again. What we usually say, or I hope Major League Baseball gets back to the season soon, or that the Angels win the World Series. These are ways we use the word hope culturally. But these ways of using hope is really another way of saying, I wish. Or I'm throwing it up there thinking, maybe on a good day, it will come down the way I want it to. But that's not the way the Bible uses the word hope. So sometimes I find the word a little um, difficult to, to, to talk about because our culture's done a good job at cheapening some great words like faith, hope, and love, hasn't it? And I feel like <laughs> as Christians, we're always going back and saying, wait, no, we got to re-understand these words, faith, hope, and love in a biblical context. Well, here, let's look at the word hope in its biblical context, all right? I had some fun and frustration in looking at some of the words here in verses 5 and 6, um, because there actually isn't a lot of difference in the Hebrew. There isn't a lot of difference between the word wait and hope. I found that really interesting. Um, so when you look at verse 5, we already said that I wait for Yahweh. Well, that's I count on you. I rely on you. But then it says, in your word I hope. And some translations went so far as to say as, in your word I wait. Hmm. My soul waits for Yahweh. More than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. And then verse 7, O Israel, hope in Yahweh. That's his exclamation point in the ESV. O Israel, hope in Yahweh. That's his climatic. This is, this is what we need. We need hope in Yahweh. Okay, but what, what does all this mean in verse 5, 6, and 7? This, this, this play on with hope, this watchman, this waiting. Well, one commentator saw so much connection between it all. He basically said, what hope is, is it's watching and waiting. That's what hope is, watching and waiting. And I don't disagree in my understanding of the word hope either. Notice how, um, again, we say in, in Jewish poetry, like the Psalms, line one is often reiterated by line two. So look at line one in verse five. I wait for Yahweh, my soul waits. Now line two, in his word I hope. So how do we wait for Yahweh? Or what does it look like to wait for Yahweh? One of the ways the psalmist says is to hope in his word. So not a lot of difference between waiting and hoping or counting on, relying on, leaning our solution upon God. But then he gives us an analogy, a picture in verse 6. My soul waits for Yahweh more than watchmen for the morning. And he says it again, more than watchmen for the morning. That, friends, is better than a definition, I would say. I'll give you a definition in a moment. But sometimes a picture is worth more than a thousand words. And here we have a picture of hope. So you have the city of Jerusalem, let's say. 
And you have the watchmen on the walls who are making sure there's nothing wrong, no fires, no enemy invading, no locust plague on the horizon. Watchmen are keeping their eye on all things while the rest of the city sleeps. Now the watchmen, it says, um, I wait for Yahweh or for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. Now, watchmen waiting for the morning. They're watching all things and their shift is over when the sun comes up. They are hoping for morning. Now, they aren't saying, oh, I sure hope the morning comes as if they weren't sure if it was going to come or not. No, they're hoping for morning because in its coming comes their salvation or their deliverance from the task of being watchmen. The danger of the night is over when morning comes. So what does watchman do? He watches for morning. He's waiting for morning. He's hoping for morning. And when the sun rises, all is well. So you can imagine how, you know, you say you're on this long graveyard shift. And what are you looking forward to? You're looking forward to morning. That is how I understand hope. Hope is the ability to look forward. It's the ability to look forward because we know what God's future is. If I didn't know what God's future looked like, I would have nothing to look forward to. I would be stuck in the present with a huge question mark about the future, and all I'd be able to do is look at the two feet in front of my own two feet, which is basically like wallowing in the slew of despond. Despond is a loss of confidence and hope, but here we're being told by the psalmist we can regain confidence and we can regain hope by waiting on God. And so as a watchman's looking forward to the coming of the morning, we get to look forward to the coming of God's morning. And here morning has so much more meaning than just the sun's rising. Morning is when the Son of God rose from the dead. You'll notice that all four Gospels at the beginning of the resurrection account make painstaking effort to tell you it was early in the morning, before the sun was up, or while it was still dark. All of them have a specific way of saying it was the first day of the week and it was early in the morning. Because when the Son of God came up, all of the hopes of Israel found what they were looking forward to. Friends, we are still looking forward to the new morning to come. The morning when Jesus returns. We know who holds the future, we say all the time. We know that God has it in control. So we get to hope. We get to look forward to the son's coming, to his return, knowing that there is, it's going to get better. I look forward to things that are better than they are right now. Otherwise, I dread what's to come. My kids look forward to dessert every night as they're eating their food. And the common question is, have I had enough to get my treat? We always have to say, five more bites, two more bites, finish that part. No, we gave you enough, eat all of it, whatever. There's a lot of negotiating going on. They hope for dessert because there's something to look forward to. Now, if we reversed the order and we gave them dessert first, hope's gone. Because they're dreading, oh, now I got to eat that. Why don't I get to end with the best thing? When we and where we find ourselves in despond 
or in spiritual depression and we feel weighed down and there's no going forward, we've lost hope. We need to understand that with God there's forgiveness, which means there's always a future. We don't have to dread a future where we have to pay a debt. We get to look forward to a future where we are welcomed into God's kingdom, to his eternal city, because he's already taken care of the things we're dreading. And on the broader context, maybe of us feeling despond about life right now, we don't have to sink in that sand. We have solid ground. As the watchman looks for the morning, so we hope for his return because it will be good. The alternative is to sink, to keep sinking in despondency. See, despondency should teach us about God's transcendency. Our despondence translates to his transcendence. We realize I've got nothing and we should see he's got everything. But if we don't have hope, then we're stuck. And all we can do is sink. There's only one way to go. So guilt can mire us in the past, always regretting what we've done, always looking back and saying, I wish I did that differently. But with you, there's forgiveness. And so now I'm not mired in the guilt of the past. I am freed with hope for the future. I can look forward. And because I can look forward and I'm out of the slew of despond, I can move forward. So, if we do, we need to, well, maybe you're asking, where do we find hope? This psalm tells us one good place to start is God's word. Verse 5, in your word I hope. This is the source of confidence. I don't have to hope in myself. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. I don't have to hope in the government. I don't have to hope in the pursuit I'm after. I hope in his word. I trust in what he said, that he said he's coming back, that he is the king of the world. In his word, I hope. That's my confidence in this hope. Now, if we choose to hope, then we will find abundance. We will find abundance in our context. Recall what it said there in verse 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in Yahweh, because here's what will happen. For with him is steadfast love. The security, the solid ground you need, it's there. And with him is plentiful redemption. So his love is is steadfast, it's unending. His redemption, his taking your sin away, his rescuing you from your plight, his buying you back and owning you as his child, that is plentiful. There's no limit to it. It's, well, no, you've got to upgrade and subscribe to this edition if you want more. No, right now, there's plentiful redemption. That's hope. And he will redeem us from all iniquities. This is the abundance we can walk in. The slew of despond and depression and darkness, that is limiting. It's constricting. It's restricting. All we can see is our plight and how do we get out. All we can see is ourselves moving down and we start uh, forecasting terrible scenarios about where life is going. That is limiting. It's a prison. But hope gives us abundance. Hope says look up and keep going. Hope teaches us abundance. I want to end and leave you with two quotes 
One from John O'Donohue. He's an Irish Catholic poet. And another from the Bible. John O'Donohue says this. When your thinking is locked in false certainty or negativity, that's that's despondency, right? When your thinking is locked in false certainty, I'm going to fix this, and negativity, the best is behind me. When your thinking is locked in false certainty or negativity, it puts so many interesting and vital areas of life out of your reach, wallowing in the slew despond. You live impoverished and hungry in the midst of your own abundance. Ooh. You live impoverished and hungry in the midst of your own, imbu- your own abundance. There's the God who's forgiving you freely. He's wanting to pull you out of the slough. He's wanting to give you hope and to keep moving forward. That's abundance. And yet, when we choose to sink into despondency, no, I got this, I'm going to fix this. We are starving ourselves in the midst of abundance. So, friends, if we wait on God, perhaps you know this verse very well. You know what happens to those who wait on him, who put their hope in him? Isaiah 40, verse 31 says, They who wait for Yahweh shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We need this kind of hope today. So, when the bottom falls out and you wonder, how can I stand? Seek the solid ground of the hope God gives us in Christ.